Good morning. I'm just thinking, I have not been physically in this pulpit to preach since March last year. So, And every single week, I look out, as these weeks have you know, proceeded along, as we get in this beautiful space once again, with the privilege of seeing each other face to face, and dare I say, heart to heart. So good morning. Last Sunday, we celebrated the Feast of the Holy Trinity, a feast day that is not only one of holy mystery, but also one that offers us an invitation to the inextricable, loving, and intimate relationship of the Trinity Rooted and grounded in that mystery that is the divine, we, God's beloveds, are invited into the choreography of divine love. It is love that becomes a dance, love that weaves us together, a love that makes of us one. The very body of Christ in which you and I participate. And as a member of the body of Christ, we are also made one with creation, the beautiful, diverse creation that surrounds us. And we are one with the spirit in whom we live and move and have our being. Abide with me as I in you, Jesus says. Abide in my love. I am the vine and you are the branches. So many wonderful and inviting ways to express the great mystery that is divine love enfolding, supporting, inspiring, weaving, healing, reconciling, and knitting us one in one, all in all. Henry Nouwen wrote many, many beautiful and inspiring books, and there is one among them that I treasure most, and it's a, entitled Life of the Beloved. In it, Henry expresses the struggles that he experiences in his own life as one who truly never believed that he was worthy of that love, that unconditional love of God in Jesus Christ. Well, I know in my life I've struggled with that too. Struggle living as a beloved, believing that I'm worthy to be loved by my creator in such unconditional ways. Our belovedness as beings made in the sacred diversity that is the image and likeness of God. If we look around, even here this morning, in the great diversity of faces and beings and life experiences, each of us here right now represents a certain image and likeness of the divine. How extraordinary to be in each other's presence knowing that. Growing up as a Roman Catholic girl, I made friends very early on. I was educated by Dominican sisters, and so they taught me a lot about, not only about St. Dominic, but about St. Catherine of Siena, a 14th century mystic, only one of two women in the Roman church ever to be named a doctor of the church. 
Catherine inspired me. In fact, I took her name as my confirmation name. Catherine was granted visions, experiences of deep intimacy with Christ. She had the courage to challenge the patriarchal forces of her own day and time, to to really to transform the abusive and oppressive church structures right up to and including the papacy. She influenced Pope Gregory XI to leave Avignon and to return to Rome. And then she was sent as his special negotiator to negotiate peace between Florence and Rome. And she was more than successful. Her story captivated my little girl's imagination because I didn't see women close to the altar. But I knew in Catherine's spirit that there were these women of such force and faith that could inspire dreams never dreamt or dare to be dreamt by anyone, especially a girl. Her story was taken to my heart, and I believe it was her story of faith that invited this once precocious girl to discern my own vocation with conviction, with courage, and more than a little trepidation. Of course, to live into the question of vocation, yours and mine, as the baptized people of God, opening our hearts ever so hesitatingly to the seemingly impossible discernment of our vocation. And that's what it felt like for me. Who had God dreamt for me to become? It seemed more than a little um, impossible that it might even be priesthood. This certainly was not the vocation either my family or the Roman church envisioned for me. I knew the cost of discerning such a vocation that would exile me from my family and from the church into which I was born. And yet only by the grace and gift of the Holy Spirit, I trusted the questions arising in my heart. Trust the questions, not the easy answers, the hard and difficult questions that make life worth living and allow us to begin to dream with God the dream of our lives, our vocations. Leaving the church, as my family called it, leaving the church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church into which I had been born, was not only considered a betrayal of the church, it was a betrayal of the very family into which I was born. It came with a cost. Maybe you have made decisions in your life that you knew were absolutely essential for your life. And maybe that put you at odds with people that you loved and who loved you, but would not love you sufficiently, unconditionally, if you made a choice other than what they would have you make. I knew in my heart of hearts that if I abandoned the vocational discernment that was going to be my journey to priesthood, I would potentially suffer a loss not only of identity, but of my very soul. 
Throughout the Gospels, we recognize the various ambiguities and tensions and downright contradictions at times within the canon of Holy Scripture. And we encounter within them certain stories in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures in which some of these stories and parables serve to invite deeper questions rather than resolve a simple one. I commend to you the gospel we have before us today as just one of those gospel stories. On Wednesday for the parish email, I wrote a reflection on questions of the heart, questions of faith, questions that demand we ask them on behalf of a deeper desire to deepen our relationship with God and Jesus Christ, to deepen our faith, and to live into the actions that our faith really demands for us to live, even in a world full of violence of one kind or another. In my reflection, I quoted an author who uh, wrote these words. What does it mean that Jesus asks so many questions? I do not think that he is vague or ambivalent. I don't think he's wishy-washy. I think Jesus' questions mean something else altogether. Questions forge intimacy. Questions build closeness. Maybe this is one reason Jesus is always asking questions. It is the one way to create intimacy between himself and us. But I would also add, it is also one way to create not only intimacy with the divine who loved us into being, who loves us still, and it is also a way to create a compassionate, justice-seeking, loving intimacy between us and among all others with whom we share this earthly journey. Enter our gospel. It seems to me that simply to rush into a conversation about Jesus's family values, and you know those terms have been used as weapons against people, we must look much deeper into the complexity of this gospel to really find its meaning. Last week, Josh talked about how amazing it is to walk through Mark's gospel with so much happening, so much complexity. And here again, we're only in the third chapter, so it's kind of like buckle your seatbelts, right? There's quite a cast of characters in this gospel story this morning. The crowd arrives, and I can almost feel, I bet you too uh, as well, you can almost feel the force of this crowd as they swarm around Jesus. Interestingly enough, the crowd has no real speaking role, but their actions really speak to me about how much more they wanted from Jesus, how much closer they wanted to be with him. Second, Jesus' family is on the scene intending to seize him. It feels like a family intervention to me, as this family wants to rescue Jesus from what they think is his own confusion. The way that he's acting sort of out of bounds, out of his mind, really, because this, clearly this family, never, ever thought that he would be behaving this way, speaking this way, with such authority and with such power. And they're confused. 
but they've drawn their own conclusions. And lastly, the scribes from Jerusalem are eager to offer their own explanation about Jesus and his power. In fact, their pronouncement that Jesus is some kind of satanic agent and not a divine one truly recognizes the power that they experience in him. They are reacting to his power, but they're choosing to describe it in a certain limited and untruthful way. So even as the family calls out to Jesus, even as Jesus hears your mother and your brother and your sisters are outside asking for you, Jesus immediately asks a question. Who are my mother and my brothers, and I would add, and my sisters? To which he immediately answers, whoever does the will of God is my brother and my mother and my sisters. So let's unpack that a little bit. It sounds a lot to me like who is my neighbor. It sounds a lot to me like the greatest commandment to love God, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is foundational to Jesus's mission where everyone belongs in the kingdom, in the reign of God. No outcasts, no others in the reign of God. Everyone belongs. Every single being belongs as a beloved of God. And we are not to choose to behave or to judge anyone in that way as well. When Jesus declared, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother, it defied the culture of his day. He made a very, very controversial statement. No longer are you close to God because you were born into a Jewish household. No longer do you just take care of your own kind. Instead, your understanding of family, your understanding of how you are to live in relationship to all others is turned on its head. And so it does for us in our own day and time. Doing the will of God, being the hands and heart of Jesus, following the way of Jesus, is only and always about love. Love that is inclusive. Love that is merciful and compassionate. Love that is prophetic. Love that is true and forgiving. Love that is patient and kind. Love that expands and expands and expands again. Love that doesn't count the cost and yet is willing to make a difference in the name of that inclusive love of Jesus Christ. Jesus is clear about how we are to live if we dare consider ourselves to be his disciples. What is required? to make the efforts within and beyond our families of origin to reconcile and restore right relationship, to welcome and invite others into right and holy relationship, even those with whom we most struggle. We are called to be the hands and heart of Christ in this really broken world. We are called to accept the cost of separation that is the truth of God's dream for us. 
Perhaps you in your life have lived into a way of living that somebody described for you that was not true about you. I know I've done that at times. It's like putting on a jacket that doesn't fit. You know it's not you. I think this gospel speaks something about truth this morning, truth that is discerned in love, truth that is discerned in community. We are not to take the roles or try to be those for whom we are not meant to be. We are not to live the way that others might have us live, but we are to live as the beloveds of God, trusting in our own capacity to discern God's dream for each and every one of us, and then to be companions of others on the journey in their life. In his exquisite and challenging book, Christian Households, The Sanctification of Nearness, Thomas Bredenthal, the retired bishop of Southern Ohio, wrote these words, pretty simple. Communion with Jesus is the beginning of our communion with every other being, starting with Jesus. And so, my friends, the message of this gospel this morning, I believe, is something like what Bredenthal invites us to think about. Communion with Jesus means communion with all. So may you and I not settle for tiny ticky-tacky boxes for God or for ourselves. May you and I have the courage, the faith, and the love that is seated in our souls to be true to God's dream for us, for all of us, for all creation. For love expands, expands, and expands again. Amen.